Hey everyone, welcome back to Who's There. I'm your host, Allison. If you're new here, thank you for joining us. And if you're returning, thank you for coming back. This is a podcast where I talk to a new horror fan every week because I hope to destigmatize what it means to be a horror movie fan. Because most of us are just regular people who like the adrenaline rush of being scared for some reason, and here we delve into those reasons. This week, I'm so excited because we have the creator of the Final Destination series, Jeffrey Reddick, with us on the podcast. Final Destination is one of those movies that I remember seeing as a kid in theaters so vividly, and who could ever forget the opening scene of Final Destination 2? He answers all of my questions about the series, and there are spoilers, so if you haven't seen Final Destination before, first, go watch them immediately, and second, why are you even listening to this podcast if you haven't seen them before? Just kidding. He also told me how he got Tony Todd to be in the Final Destination movies. He talks about what inspired him to write his latest feature film, Don't Look Back, how he got the attention of New Line Cinema's Bob Shea when he was just 14 years old, what it's like to try to film a movie in Hollywood right now, and why he has a special place in his heart for Halloween H2O. I also wanted to put a trigger warning in because he does talk about his experience living through 9-11 when he was a resident of Lower Manhattan on that horrible day. So if you want to skip that, it's around the one hour and three minute marker. I think I've rambled enough, so let's get into this episode with Jeffrey Reddick. Today I'm joined by horror writer and producer Jeffrey Reddick. I'm so excited to have him on. You may recognize him as the creator of the Final Destination series, and he also wrote the scripts for Final Destination 2, 2008's Day of the Dead, and most recently, Don't Look Back, which was just released on Video On Demand. He also produced Dante's Cove, The Call, and A Life's Work. Without further ado, let's bring Jeffrey on. Hey, Jeffrey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Allison? I'm good. Thanks for being here. Of course. Um, Thank you for having me. So I know from doing some research that you're from Kentucky, and when you were 14 years old, you wrote a 10-page treatment that was a prequel to Nightmare on Elm Street, but sadly it got returned. You sent it to New Line, and I love that you were really persistent, and you sent it back to Robert Shea, and he finally read it, and yeah. um, that led to an internship for you in college at New Line. And the yeah. rest, as they say, is history. Have you ever published the 10-page Nightmare on Elm Street treatment that you wrote? No, you know, the funny thing is I, you know, when you're 14, you never, you know, you're not thinking that far ahead about, so I never, I kept it for a while and then somehow it just got lost um, over the years. Cause you never think, oh, someday, you know, you're not thinking that far ahead, (laughs) like to keep it. But all I remember about it is it was a pretty generic, you know, Freddy Krueger was a janitor at the school and he was, you know, killing kids and the parents burned him at the end. So it wasn't, you know, in my 14-year-old brain, it was brilliant, but, you know, I, I don't think it was any anything groundbreaking, <laughs> uh, you know, when I look back. Well, it got Robert Shea's attention, so yeah. it must have been decent. Yeah, he was very encouraging, and I think he was more encouraged because I wrote him back and was, you know, persistent. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, you know, this was in 84, so New Line had just really started to become a bigger studio with Nightmare on Elm Street doing so well, so I think that was probably a time where he was just, you know, thought it was you know, cute that, you know, this kid in Kentucky was so excited and wrote something. So he just was very encouraging after that. So that's nice. Yeah. I'm very grateful to him and to his assistant, uh, Joy Mann, who's, who's no longer with us, sadly, but they were, they were very wonderful to me, just sending me scripts and encouraging me, you know, that goes a long way when you're young and really don't even know the business. So I learned a lot because of them. They definitely gave me the opportunity of a lifetime. So yeah, that was probably so amazing to intern for them in college. Yeah, I went to um, I went to New York when I was 19 to study acting for the summer. And originally it was going to be a summer internship. And then I decided just to stay in New York. So I just stayed on and, and worked there till 
till I sold the story for Final Destination 2, actually. And then finally they were like, all right, Jeff, <laughs> like, we love you, but um, you, you know, you sold two projects now It's t- to a studio. It's time to go off and be a big boy writer. I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, so given that you wrote a treatment for Nightmare on Elm Street, is that your favorite horror movie? Yes. <laughs> Why is that your favorite? You know what? I think it is, you know, you can't separate maybe the time of your life when, when it happened, but you know, I saw it at a very impressionable age. You know, I'd seen so many horror films up to then that were fun, but they were all the same, you know, pretty people going to places and getting killed by somebody in a mask or not in a mask. And, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, just the story and the special effects and all the dream sequences. They, they it just thought, and Nancy, the final girl who was like the smartest final girl I'd ever seen. Um, you know, it's, it's, there, it was just so much that impacted me, you know, so I tell people that I really liked horror movies up to that point, but that movie made me fall in love with horror movies. And then I started reading Fangoria magazine, which is like the horror, you know, horror Bible. And, you know, they would talk about how they did the effects and how they made the magic happen. And it just, you know, fascinated me so much. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it's always been my favorite movie and I can't really separate all the awesome stuff about the movie because it is a classic. I mean, it's, yeah. everybody considers it a classic, so I'm not biased, but I can't <laughs> separate it from the fact that it inspired me so much. And then it also led to me working there, which was so, you know, when I first started entering there, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm working at the studio that made Nightmare on Elm Street. And I got to see like all this cool stuff that nobody else saw, you know, that they had in their storage rooms and stuff. And it was, <laughs> you know, it was really cool. Yeah. That must've been so neat. Um, yeah. Did you ever get to take home any pro- old props from Nightmare on Elm Street during your internship? No, I want. I wanted to get a Freddy glove, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, they only had the Freddy glove in New York a couple times because I worked, you know, in the New York office. So yeah. I remember it was there one time when I was playing with it, and one of the blades was kind of loose, and it like landed like right under my eye. So I almost almost got blinded by it. So I can at least say that. Freddie's glove attacked me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not many people can say that. Not many can say that. The original Freddie glove almost, it attacked me. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so I'm a big fan of the Final Destination series and because I'm a big nerd, I pulled out, and I'm a bit of a hoarder, I pulled out my ticket stubs. Oh, wow. Final Destination 2, January, uh, February 1st, 2003, and Final Destination April 20th, 2000. Wow. Um, so I didn't see the others in theaters, but I saw them after. Um, yeah. And they, they left an impression on me. I will never forget the opening scene from Final Destination 2. Two. It is, I know. It is the reason why whenever anyone of my generation is driving and they see like a big truck with some stuff on the back of it, or and especially logs, they're like, we got to we gotta pull off yeah. this again. Yeah, that's, I think that's my probably my one of my favorite horror openings of any movie. Like, you know. There's other good ones, but I that's I think that's in my top three of, of horror movie openings because it wasn't just you know because you know it was my idea it was more David Ellis who directed it um, he was a stunt person so we knew that he would know how to set that scene up and have it play out so literally in the script you know there were only a couple of lines of dialogue that um Eric Bress and J Mackie Gruber wrote when they wrote the screenplay was just like the logs, you know, hit the highway and it's unimaginable carnage. Like they didn't, cause they knew that David would design the whole sequence um, as a stunt person. And he did such an amazing job with it. So why do you think that people who seem perfectly sane love the horror genre? <laughs> I think we're probably sane because we love the horror genre. Um, I always, 
you know, I get asked that a lot and I, I, you know, I've always thought about it. And I think that, you know, most of the horror creators that I know and the horror fans I meet are like the nicest, most down to earth people in the world. And I think that's probably because a lot of us, you know, weren't always like the most popular kids in school, you know, that seems to be a common thing. That doesn't mean we were unpopular. That just means we weren't like the captain of the football team or we weren't the prom queen. Like we were maybe close, but we never were (laughs) at that quite level. And, um, you know, a lot of horror movies, if you look at the final girls or the final boys in the, in the horror franchises, they're never the, you know, the most popular kids are the ones that get killed first. (laughs) And then it's kind of like the kind of outsider that is, has to rise up to be a hero. Um, That's in almost every horror film, like, you know, from even like Halloween. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis was like studious and very serious. And, you know, her friends were the party girls and out having fun with everybody and had boyfriends and she didn't. So I think that there's just something inherently where we connect with that part of the stories that anybody can be a hero. You know, like in a horror movie, you don't have to be the most popular person or the most attractive person on the planet to like overcome these obstacles. So I think a lot of us can relate to that. And I think in general, horror movies, I've always said this are, you know, a safe space to like let out a lot of your fears and anxieties, you know, especially in the society, you know, where men are, are told they can't show fear you know, you, they can go to a horror movie and jump and, and, you know, we all can and we feel safe. And so I think you can get a lot of that fear out of your system watching a horror movie. Just like you can go watch a comedy and just laugh and laugh and laugh. I think horror movies let us kind of get our fear out. And it's funny, I, I say this as a joke and at some, at some point somebody's going to get offended, but I'm like, you know, the romantic comedy writers are the ones you have to watch out for, you know, like you, ever, you know, because we've, we've exercised all our demons because we watch all these movies and, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it's like, you know, the funniest people actually do seem to have the most demons. If you look at comedians and stuff like that, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, um, that's so true. Uh, I listen to another podcast called Romancing the Pod, where they go through old rom-coms and they just point out all the problems. So they're very problematic often. (laughs) But I first heard you speak on Mark Ramsey's podcast uh, about Inside the Exorcist. It was like his final episode that you did. Oh, wow. um, a couple months ago. Yeah. And I really resonated with what you said. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said something like the outsiderness hits everybody because especially in the horror genre, because I think a lot of horror fans and people who make horror films grew up on these. And obviously everyone growing up was like, ew, how can you watch all that sick stuff? When I meet people, the first thing they say is, oh, you're not creepy at all. Reality of it is we've grown up on a genre we've always adored, but pretty much we've always been told is pretty much one step above porn as far as respectability goes. And I was like, he gets it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's the, and that's been the frustrating thing from even a young age till even today. It's like the horror genre, it's always either, you know, especially, you know, it used to be like a launching pad for directors where it's like, okay, well, I want to direct, so I'll do a horror movie first because I know that they're cheap. You don't have to have a star and it'll make a profit. So horror films have always made a profit. They just, a lot of them just never get respect. I mean, some of the classic older films got respect, like, you know, Get Your Omens and and films like that, where there is, they're considered respectable, but then they're like, well, it's not really horror. It's more of a, you know, supernatural thriller. It's more of a this. But horror, horror as a genre just never seems to get the respect it deserves. And it still doesn't, you know, like, and, and it's, especially when you're growing up and then you start looking in the entertainment industry, it's like, oh, you need to do a drama or you need to do like an Academy Award winning kind of this or that. And it's like, but you know, again, horror movies, there are some Academy Award winning horror 
worthy horror films out there. And it's just a genre that just has not never gotten the respect it deserves. And I think that's changed definitely to a degree now because they start respecting the filmmakers and the, the money obviously that they make and that people respond to them. But you still don't see a lot of horror actors and actresses being put up for Academy Awards when they give gut-wrenching performances in, in good movies. And so it's just kind of sad, you know, it's like, okay, well, if they're in a period piece, they have a much more better chance of getting an Academy Award than they do if they're in a horror film. Yeah, one of the biggest uh, award robberies, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, was Toni Collette in Hereditary. Oh, Hereditary, yeah. It was stolen from her. That's the word, stolen. Yeah. So who would you say are your favorite horror directors? Um, I'd say my favorite directors, you know, Wes Craven. I mean, I, I wish he was still around making stuff because he's made some so many seminal movies. I love John Carpenter. Um, I love Dario Argento. Alfred Hitchcock, when he did suspense and horror, he did a really good job about it with it. You know, those are kind of the classic directors that I like a lot, you know. I mean, and again, I can't separate them from when I was growing up to the impact they had on me. You know, like their their work is the stuff that really, you know, Suspiria like just blew me away when I saw that movie. Um, and I love his style, even though a lot of his stories don't, you know, his stories don't have much going on, <laughs> but they look beautiful. And, you know, I think John Carpenter's a great auteur because, you know, he does his own music and, you know, he shoots a certain way. You always know when you're watching a John Carpenter movie. And, you know, Wes Craven, I think he's just such a versatile genre filmmaker. Um, yeah, th I think those are my probably my top three favorites. I mean, I, you know, love George Romero's work and David Cronenberg's work and even Brian, I like Brian De Palmer's because I know I'll start forgetting people that are friends of mine. <laughs> so I'm just like, but um, yeah, those are the, those are the classic kind of directors that I really admired. Those are definitely some great picks. Joe Dante, you know, can't forget <laughs> them. <laughs> Toby Hoover, see, there, you know, there's so many. Are there any horror movies in the last five years that have really jumped out at you that you've really enjoyed? Um, there have been quite a few. It's so funny because I need to kind of like make a list because it's mm -hmm. right now I'm, I'm, my brain is kind of like, has a COVID like cloud over it. So it's it like, I'm like, what day is it? Okay, it is month. I know that. So it's, it's you know, some of the movies that I really enjoyed, you know, I definitely enjoyed um, Get Out. I thought that was a really, really strong movie. This was fun horror, but I enjoyed like Happy Death Day. I thought that was a lot of fun. It was so good. I love yeah, that movie. Really can't wait to see Freaky. Um, <laughs> what did you think of the Halloween 2018 reboot? I liked it, you know, I, you know, obviously seeing Jamie Lee Curtis at back was great. And I thought some of the suspense and the kills were great. I think my biggest problem, and I just, this is, a, this is a personal thing for me is I don't understand why they ignored all the other ones. Like, cause I thought Halloween H2O was, it was really good. And since you didn't technically see Jamie Lee Curtis die, in the next one, you know, they CGI trees in because originally she just fell off the building and they actually CGI trees in so that they could pick her up later. So they could have had the same movie, you know, they could have just had the same movie with her still alive 40 years later. So I thought that that was a little weird that they kind of just ignored everything after Halloween and then kind of gave her a whole different family. Like they could have just brought Josh Hartnett back and had the same other character, you know, like they didn't have to. That was just a weird choice for me. Yeah, I've never thought about that. Um, I once heard people who did a podcast about Halloween, they said that they just wanted to wipe the slate clean because there were so many different side stories. And with the Rob Zombie Halloween movies, um, they just wanted yeah. to cut it off. 
It's, which I understand, but I understand your point as well. Yeah, it's because I had Halloween 20 years later. I think it just had Halloween 40 years later, <laughs> you know, in my opinion. I was like, oh, you didn't really gain us anything. But I, you know, I will say I love that, you know, there's a give and take because I've, I've seen the, the teases for the new one, Halloween Kills, which look amazing. And they're bringing Mary and Crane back who got killed in Halloween H2O. So I'm like, all right, I'm excited to see her back. So, you know, I'm warming over you know, yeah. getting over my hesitations and warming over to like the new, the new take on it. So. Yeah. The, the team was like, how can we, how can we get Jeffrey Reddick to like us? <laughs> Let's bring Marion Crane. Yeah. When I saw she was back, I was like, okay, you got me. <laughs> I'll watch it. Yeah. Well, I, the funny thing is I watch it all the time. So it's, it, it's just when I first read about it, I'm like, why are you ignoring Halloween H2O? Like just, I just didn't see it. Cause I know what they're saying about all the other, yeah, thorn stuff and and bloodlines and things like that. But the Halloween H two O kind of took that, forgot all about that too. Anyway, it's <laughs> you know they make creative decisions, and at the end of the day, it was not. It was great to see Jamie Lee Curtis back fighting Michael Myers. Um, so you're in the industry, so I don't know if you actually um, go to regular screenings of movies a lot. So I always ask everyone, have you ever had any noteworthy experience experiences seeing a movie in theaters? Have you? No, I. I mean, if I don't. You know, when I, it's funny because when I worked at New Line, I, I went to so many screenings for New Line movies or other screenings. I just went to screening. I got so spoiled at New Line. And, and you know, now I live in L.A., it's like I rarely, unless it's a friend's movie, I rarely go to like a screening. I just usually will go see a movie opening night, you know, so I'll just go see movies opening night in the theaters. I mean, the screening stuff is fun when you go to like, you know, there are theaters here where they'll show like have a 40 year or 20 year anniversary of a film and they'll have like the actors and directors there. So that's always a fun thing to, fun thing to go do. Yeah. So, so that's been the most fun is just kind of, you know, seeing like Friday, the, one of the Friday the 13th with all the cast there, you know, or seeing, you know, Candyman with Tony Todd there seeing, you know, so that's kind of a cool thing about living in LA is when they do those retrospects and the Q and A after that's always a lot of fun. Definitely. That sounds awesome. But I still, I still like to go like, opening night for a horror film. I still like to go opening night, you know, yeah. like I used to do all the time. It's like a still fights obviously with the COVID now it's, yeah. it's a lot different, but you know, I'm going to go see freaky this weekend, but I think we'll probably end up, you know, having to drive like an hour and a half to get to a theater <laughs> that's showing it because LA has such a strict policy about theaters, but they will be, they'll still be like social distancing and stuff, but yeah, I definitely want to see it in a theater. Like nothing beats seeing a good horror film in a theater. Very true. Very true. What was the last horror movie that you saw in theaters before COVID? Uh, the last movie I saw in theaters before COVID, it's so funny because everybody, I, and I know this, I just have to think for a second. What was a horror movie that came out? <laughs> Underwater, just... The Turning, Black Christmas. No, hang on, I'm just going to... Invisible gonna... Man? Uh, the Invisible Man, thank you. Yes. yes. <laughs> I saw The Invisible Man in theater and that movie, I mean, Lee Wan L is amazing. Like his upgrade movie was phenomenal. Um, and Invisible Man was just brilliant. So yeah, I saw that in the theater. That was the last movie. And I'm glad because that was like, that was a high to go out on. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I don't remember what the last horror movie I saw in theaters was. It may have been The, the Turning, which was not a high note to go out on. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I saw Invisible Man after 
uh, after COVID hit and they shut everything down, I got it on demand. So I love, yeah, I love the invisible man. I thought that was a good movie. And then I went to the drive in to see the new mutants movie, which isn't a horror. Well, it's kind of a horror movie. They positioned it like a horror movie. Yeah. They positioned it as a horror film, but it, wasn't in the invisible man for sure so your latest movie don't look back is about karma and it's very appropriate for the smartphone generation as it's about a group of people who witness a man being beat to death in a park and do nothing to intervene and save him and most just record what's going on on their phone what inspired the idea for this movie you know the concept of people not helping has been something that's stuck with me for a long time uh there was a, a case with about this woman named kitty genovese who um yeah um, yeah, you know, everybody was has kind of heard that story about the woman who was assaulted in uh, New York, I believe, um, and outside of her apartment complex. And the story at the time was that all these people watched and nobody helped. And that story became like legend. And it's always stuck with me. It's just always troubled me. And I never knew how to kind of tackle that story until after Final Destination, where people were kind of telling me like, well, you you dealt with something that was real and universal and tapped into something deep. Like what else? do you feel strongly about what else is something that stuck with you? And I remembered that story. And then I started thinking about like, you know, what, why would, why people don't do, why people don't help. And I thought that there's a lot of interesting meat to explore in that. And the one thing that I did different with this is originally I was going to make it a straight up kind of karma supernatural movie, but I was talking to a producer and uh, Wendy Rhodes and she's like, why don't you try to, why don't you make it where we don't know if it's karma? Like what if it, you know, what it could be a karma or a killer. And I thought that was a really interesting way to go. Cause if I'd have made it straight up karma, it would have felt like final destination with karma instead of death. And by having it where you don't know if it's a killer or not, I thought it got to, it was a different type of movie. It's more like a mystery where you're trying to figure out what's doing it or is the lead character is this all in her head until the very end. And hopefully the ending satisfies you with what the re- what the reveal is there's several twists and reveals in it but the funny thing is when i was flying down to we shot it in baton rouge when i was flying down there to location scout i saw a documentary on kitty genovese on the plane oh wow <laughs> and it actually debunked that story because apparently what happened is there were several people i mean nobody rushed out there and ran the guy off but several people did call the police several people did do things somebody actually found her in the stairwell and like stayed with her till the police came and unfortunately she passed away. But it came out that this reporter went down there to just, you know, he was covering the story, but then he realized like how he could spin it to sell newspapers, which, you know, obviously if it bleeds, it leads at that horrible saying. And so this whole myth had been kind of perpetrated over since, you know, the sixties, I think is when it happened to her. So this whole myth had been kind of part of our culture until, you know, they went in and dug in and, I was like, this is interesting that this is happening on the plane ride down while I'm shooting this movie inspired by by her. But it was nice to hear that it was, people weren't as callous as they had been made out to be. Yeah, definitely. I think people are generally generally good and will will help if yeah. they get there. Um, and that's a fine line you're walking to because, you know, you don't want to have, like, and that's what I've been, it's a weird scenario to set up because you have to take so much into account because the person can't be so big that you're like, well, nobody could do anything. But then at the end of the day, the point is, you could yell out to stop. You could say, I'm calling the police and call the police. There's a lot of things you can do without physically putting yourself in jeopardy. Um, and, but a lot of people do freeze too. Like that's a natural reaction. So there's a lot to play with in there and everybody has their reasons for not helping. It's just some are very selfish and some aren't as selfish. And then it gets into the question of like, 
well, are they just as guilty as the person that beat the man to death or not? Um, yeah. So there was a lot of elements we wanted to play with. Yeah, it's really interesting. I rented the movie um, on demand this weekend and I watched it twice. And I think what you said about keeping the audience guessing about whether it's supernatural or an actual murderer, I think that was very true because I wasn't really sure the first time I watched it. Um, and I liked all the twists and turns that it took at the end, especially in like the last couple minutes where you yeah. find out how everything started. But I thought, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And that was, it's all about, I think there are a lot of coincidences in that movie. Yeah. And that was a, that's a really weird coincidence that you saw the Kitty Genovese documentary on your plane to go film the movie. Well, it's funny because people, you know, there are people experience coincidences all the time. And the idea is like, are those co just coincidences or is there like a pattern to these things? Yeah. And, you know, and I'm definitely, I think I've learned to talk about the movie without spoiling anything, but with, with Caitlin, I wanted it to be like, you realize that the coincidences were kind of leading her to something, but she was kind of misreading where they were leading her, you know? So yeah, it's, it's just interesting, you know, cause I've had a lot of coincidences in my life where it, I think my just most easy to grasp story is there. I lived in New York, you know, I was in New York and one day I was just walking to lunch from work. A friend of mine from like college popped into my head just out of nowhere. And then I walked around the corner and bumped into him and he was just visiting New York and, there are millions and millions of people in New York City. So the fact that we would bump into each other on the street, and I definitely thought about him before I saw him, like I had to go around the corner and see him. Like that kind of stuff just kind of, I think shows that we're all kind of connected, at least as human beings on a level that maybe we're just not in tune with because there's so much noise in the world. Yeah, yeah, everyone's in kind of in sync if you pay attention. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so when was this movie filmed? Was it filmed before COVID or? Yeah. Okay. It was filmed, we filmed it March of last year, actually. So, because, oh. you know, we were indie production, so it took us a little longer to get through through posts. And then, yeah, once we got post finished, I mean, there, you know, it took a while to get through that. And once we got post finished, then it was a matter of figuring out if we wanted to try to go to festivals or if we wanted to just try to go to distributors. Mm -hmm. And then COVID hit and we're like, well, we're not going to go to festivals. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get a distributor. <laughs> So it's available on demand right now. You can yeah. put it on Amazon or I'm assuming Apple, whatever. You can get on Amazon, yeah, um, iTunes, Vudu, YouTube, Vimeo, Google, yeah, all the, all the usual suspects. Yeah, yeah. No, I really liked the movie, and I think everyone that's listening should go should go rent it because it's if you liked Final Destination, as you said, this feels a little bit like a more adult 21st century Final Destination, but there are things that keep you guessing about whether it's supernatural or human doing the, yeah. the killing. So yeah, I just I tell people the biggest difference is I think don't go in expecting like Final Destination with like big bloody yeah. you know actiony set pieces because I you know the, with the movie since you since I couldn't tip my hat to whether it was a real killer or supernatural you can't really show a lot with the killings because you can't have somebody chasing somebody or you can't have like people getting ripped apart by some invisible force because it gives you know it so we couldn't cheat so that means that means that we couldn't show a lot of the you know couldn't show much with the kills you know to keep the mystery going yeah as listeners of this podcast now i'm not big into gore uh, <laughs> which so it made final destination three and four a little hard to watch for me but yeah. um so i i appreciated the lack of gore in this one yeah so now i have some questions regarding final destination because like i said i'm a big fan 
I saw three and four again a couple of months ago on HBO. I think it was, maybe it was Netflix, but I recently watched Final Destination 5 for the first time. It's amazing. It's blew my mind. The ending brought everything full circle. And I know you didn't write that one specifically, but how did you feel about that ending? Uh, the funny thing is I knew I knew about the ending because there was at one point, um, I, I'm per- 99% sure that Craig Perry, the producer of the franchise, he's, he's an amazing producer, an amazing man. And um, I think he came up with that idea because they, they were originally going to do that for part four and decided not to. And um, so I knew that they were going to do that, which I thought was cool. But what I loved about five and, and I enjoy all of them, you know, for, for different reasons. And, you know, part four is fun, but I think, you know, they had to rush that script out before the writer's strike. So they didn't get the time to develop it with, you know, Eric Bress as much as they would have normally had a chance to do. And they marketed it like the final destination. So any horror fan knows when you have the final chapter, the final, this, it usually ties up everything. So people went in expecting, well, we're going to get an answer about who Tony Todd is and what this is all, you know, we they just went in and then it turned out when it was just another fun Final Destination sequel, a lot of people felt like bummed out. But with part five, I think since they took, really took their time with it, it feels like for me, part five is that is two and five are my favorite sequels. Like I, I feel like part five really feels like it was made for the fans. Yeah. You know, Tony Todd's in it a lot. It's just, it just feels like it was made for the fans. Like, I, I feel like it really was. And that gym, gymnastic scene is probably my favorite oh, God. scene of, <laughs> of the franchise. Cause it, it's the only time I watched one of the movies, you know, at a screening where I actually yelled out during the screening. Cause I, nothing, cause I usually either have read the script or know enough about it that I'm not. Yeah. But, and I think I even knew what was going to happen, but just, I didn't know that button on the scene. <laughs> like when she kind of, cracks i was like yeah. i literally screamed in my seat i was like ah. yeah um, seeing, seeing something is a lot scarier usually than reading it yeah <laughs> yeah no five was so good it was such a good is it is it the end to the series no no they're they're you know and it's it's i know that there have been rumors for years and people get upset and when it's and they're like when's it happening but you know new line was very much working on another one before COVID hit like you know they were very much you know, in the mix of, of doing another one um, and kind of solidifying which script they wanted and how they wanted to take it. And then when COVID hit, obviously everything's just been put on hold. So um, it's going to be a while, I think, before, because we just don't know when the industry is going to start back up again. You know, there's kind of a second wave happening. And even though I think LA's, LA's being a little, a little ham-fisted about how they're handling, <laughs> how they're handling everything here, so the industry, it's it's very hard to shoot now. Like if you're, you know, to shoot a movie in LA right now, you pretty much, it has to be set in like probably one or two locations and you're going to have to have your cast and crew, you know, come in early and everybody's tested and only one department at a time can go on set to, so you have, you know, props can go on first, but nobody else can be there. Lights and electric can go on, you know, only two people in the makeup room at a time. So you can't have everybody get a made up at this. So it's the time that you lose with all this COVID protocols are really making it hard to, sh- you can't shoot here until it changes, unless you're going to like rent out a house and everybody sleeps in the house and they always order it and then nobody leaves for the whole shoot, then you can do that. So yeah. definitely that's not a final destination movie. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. No, that that's how the first paranormal activity movie was made. So they yeah. used the writer's house or the producer's house. So hmm. I'm surprised, surprised we haven't seen a lot more. Yeah. Because people talk about now we, 
we want a COVID friendly movie, which means, you know, one or two locations and a small cast. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's the new Hollywood phrase. We need a COVID friendly project. <laughs> Something that's cheap and easy to make. Cheap and easy to make, yes. <laughs> Have you seen Host? Yes. There were two. Are you talking about the, uh, the, the Zoom, Zoom one? one? Yeah, that one was really good. And there was another host that was really good too. Um, that was on Shutter that got overshadowed by the first host. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you should definitely check out both hosts. They're okay. yeah, they're really good. But I thought I thought the Zoom one. It's interesting because again, you feel like something's been done to death, but it's really about characters. And you know, it's really about characters. And you ended up liking all these 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 young women that were playing this game. And so you really got invested in what I was, because I'm surprised, you know, like I've seen so many of those films and it's like, I was, I was watching, I was like, I really don't want them to die. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did watch, I watched a movie, actually last night I watched this movie, Becky, that people have been talking about for a long time. Because at first, I mean, I felt like the, you know, at first I felt like the young girl was just being a little too, didn't like anybody and she was being a little too mean. But once the movie started, I was so terrified for that family. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm just sitting here the whole time going, James Gandafini, or not James Gandafini, but Kevin James is such a mean, awful person. And they're, yeah, you know, because you, you, you've seen it, obviously. So yes. you're just expecting, it keeps you on, you just don't know how it's going to go. And I loved how it ended and where it went. But I was very nervous for like that whole movie, <laughs> like what was going to happen to those those people. Yeah. Oh my God. That movie was so good. I didn't really know what to expect, but it was, it was so good. I actually dressed up as Becky for Halloween. <laughs> Not that we really did much in New York city, but yeah. I went outside my boyfriend and I were walk, walking around looking at the townhouses that decorated. So yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I, that was, that was one that I saw recently that I, you know, I just saw it last night actually. And I was like, wow, this is, yeah, this is a good movie. I'm glad. And I saw the, cleansing on shutter which i thought was really good which was yeah, like I saw a, that too yeah. yeah i didn't know i didn't have any expectations going in but i really got into the the characters and then the, when it kind of started getting crazier i was like wow they're doing a lot with this movie like and i don't know where it's going to go and i'm kind of nervous yeah it was a good movie i had been told that it was the scariest movie my friend had seen this year so that kind of set the expectations high i didn't find it that scary but i found it really interesting yeah yeah i didn't find it that scary but it was it held my attention yeah and yeah. again you care about the character you end up caring about the characters and what's going to happen with them so it's it's yeah there have been some good things there have been some good things yeah and i liked at the end of the cleansing hour it kind of at the last couple of minutes it kind of switched genres yeah so i i really liked that uh so how did you go about getting tony todd to be in the final destination movies um i wish i could take credit for that I, the only credit i can take for that is because the movie was set in New York, you know, because it was made back in, you know, late nineties, you know, it came out in 2000, but non-traditional or, or diverse casting was not on anybody's tongue at the time. And I worked at the studio and I kept saying, the movie's set in New York, we need to have the cast be diverse because you're not gonna walk on any street in New York and find all white people. Like we need a diverse cast for the young people. And I even wrote diverse characters in the script my first draft. And of course they shot it in Canada. So that even takes it further away from people worrying about diversity back then. And, you know, I ended up, I'm like, guys, we have, a, everybody's white and it's, this is supposed to be set in New York. Like it doesn't make any sense. And then 
they came back to me and they're like, hey, we just got Tony Todd. And I was like, you got Candyman. <laughs> <laughs> I geeked out so hard. And I was like, all right. <laughs> you win. You got Candyman. All right. And yeah, I have been a huge fan of him of him since Candyman. And um, even like the Night of the Living Dead remake. I just, it, you know, I just really like Tony Todd a lot. And um, so to have him in Final Destination for me was like, wow. Yeah. yeah. Did you did you fanboy at all when you met him? Um, you know, I didn't meet him when they shot the film. Um, when I the I went down for like a few days to do like a cameo and meet everybody, but he'd already he hadn't shot his stuff yet, so I didn't get to meet him then. I think I met him at the party for the second movie. Oh, okay. And got to talk to him a little bit, which was cool. But then then I started seeing him out more at horror events because he would go out. He's always going out to support people, and we would just talk. and And I started talking to him more like a person, like. <laughs> which I'm glad because the fan, you know, you, you never want to geek out on people. Yeah. And um, I always joke, I've never, the only time I've gotten starstruck, and this is only probably for sci-fi fans of a certain age, but growing up like Nightmare on Elm Street was my favorite movie, but V, the original miniseries that came out in the eighties was like my TV, like craziness. It was like this big event movie, aliens coming to earth. They remade the series, which yeah. the remake wasn't very good, but um, Jane Badler, who played Diana, who was like the evil alien in V, like I was such a fan of hers and I got to meet her when I directed a short. I kind of reached out to her on Twitter <laughs> to see if she would be in my short. That's I threw this long fanboy message and she was in Australia. So, and she agreed to do it, but we had to shoot. Yeah. I couldn't fly out there to shoot her, but we shot her out, had somebody shoot her out there. And so I met her for lunch here in California and I sat down with her and I was like speechless. I was sitting there and I couldn't talk. And my, I was just sitting there like an idiot for like, 30 <laughs> seconds and then I was like oh this is what starstruck is you know like because I'm in new when I was working at new line I got to meet a lot of you know like I met Brad Pitt I met Morgan Fre Morgan Freeman was just, I didn't geek out over him but he talked to me for like 25 minutes at the premiere of seven he was like the coolest like that's what you learn when you work at a studio is of course you celebrities are just like everybody else you know when you sit down and start talking to them some of them are assholes but most of them are like nice and they're just regular people so it does it takes a lot for me to geek out over somebody i mean i did geek out with tony todd and i did but jane badler was the only time i've been starstruck where i actually couldn't speak and i was like oh this is what starstruck is <laughs> yeah we we've all been there uh the only time i've ever been really starstruck was when i i saw jeff goldblum in the pillow man in 2005 and i met him afterwards at the stage door and i was like you're my favorite person ever. And he looked at me and he's like, me too. <laughs> That's, I don't know if it was Jeff Goldblum. I feel like I talked to somebody this week actually in an interview and it, when they told me that they got starstruck and I almost think it was Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> but it was somebody like, it was somebody in that world in that same, I think it was Jeff Goldblum though. That's interesting. Cause he, he's a great actor. You know, he's been in some of the most amazing you know, if I, I've seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the, you know, the version that he was in, like, so many, he's just a great actor. Oh. Fly, you know. He's so good. So how did you first stumble upon the book Final Destination? And what made you think that it would be a good movie? Well, it wasn't a book. It was the, I mean, the idea for Final Destination came to me when I was flying home to Kentucky. And I read an article in People Magazine where a woman was talking about you know, her mom told her not to take the flight home that she was supposed to be on the next day because she had a bad feeling about it. Mm -hmm. And she switched flights. Um, and so that put the idea in my head, like, oh, that's interesting. Like, she could have died in that flight, but her mom had a 
some kind of vision. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know what to do with that idea for a long time. But then when I was trying to get an agent for TV, you know, they made you write a TV spec script for something that was on television. And so I decided to use that idea as an opening scene for an X-Files episode. And so I had it, Scully's brother have a premonition and then death started coming after the people that got off the plane. And then, but I worked at New Line at the time. And so my friends at New Line were like, this is a great idea, Jeffrey. You should do this as a feature. Like, don't, don't send this to the X-Files. And so I developed it, you know, as a, as a treatment with Craig Perry and Warren Zai, these two producers. And originally it started off like they were all adults who didn't know each other. And then Scream came out and then all of a sudden teenagers were hot again. And so New Line's like, well, make them teenagers. I'm like, okay. So I made them teenagers. <laughs> I love Scream, by the way. That's one of my favorites as well. And Kevin Williamson's one of my favorite writers. But um, it's funny because, you know, we went through a long process, you know, with New Line because they were having trouble getting their head around death, not showing death. Like they were like, we don't get it. You, if you, can't, you can't fight death. You can't see it. And I'm like, that's the point. And um, that was a really bad sticking point for them to pick it up. And finally, we're like, well, we're going to take it to Miramax if you don't, if you pass on it. And they're like, okay, we'll buy it. <laughs> and then they had me write the script. And then we went out and we got, ironically, or karmically, I should say, not ironically, uh, we got James Wong and Glenn Morgan, who worked on some of the best episodes of The X-Files ever, <laughs> who came on board and, you know, directed the project and, and did a, 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 you know, a very substantial, like, reworking of it. And because it's, you know, again, it's something where, you know, you admire people in the business and the film starts off there and then it ends yeah. up back with in very capable X-Files hands um, <laughs> to get to the big screen. So very cool. So I said it was the it was based on a book because I was watching a video on YouTube yet last night. It was one of those things you missed in Final Destination videos. And they said it's based on a book, but I'm looking on Amazon and it looks like there's a Final Destination series, but it was published in 2005. So yeah. I don't know if the person, I don't know if they it's got confused. Yeah, they got confused because they, they have put out Final Destination books yeah. um, they, okay. and some comic, I think a couple of comic books too. Yeah, well, one of the videos was about um, the history and the backstory of Clear or Clear Rivers. Yeah. River? Yeah. And uh, they're like, and in the book, it says this and this and this. So I was like, what? Book? What? Okay. She so, must have just read the adaptation of the movie. Have you ever watched any of those things you missed Final Destination videos on YouTube? Yeah, I've watched some of those. And some of them are, are really interesting, but a lot of them are... I think information that were intentional, like that the director, yeah. you know, like James Wong wanted to give all the main characters last names of famous horror directors. Yeah. So I know a lot of times that'll pop up as like things you may not have known. And it's like, well, I knew that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you probably, you know, all that stuff. And they, they did a whole lot of stuff about numbers and like number similarities. And I was like, oh my God, how much pot did you smoke before you came up with this? Right. <laughs> well, some of it, you know, I think it's interesting because some of it's definitely, I think people probably connecting things that maybe aren't there. But I will say, like, the one great thing about having somebody like Craig Perry in the movie is he's very tuned into the fans. And so he'll definitely make sure, like, when he's talking to the set designers and prop departments, he'll be like, yeah, if you find anything with, like, 180 or, you know what I'm saying? If you find, or, like, the second one, high, the high, if you find numbers that match with this, like put him in places like so he'll definitely like put that stuff in there because he knows the fans are like looking for it so yeah. a lot of that stuff is intentional but it's it's I always say this even when I'm writing stuff like there'll be times where people watch my movies and they'll bring up concepts or subtext 
that I didn't put in there on purpose, but sometimes I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Or a lot of times people will point out like similar themes that are in all my films. And I'm like, I don't put them in there on purpose, but obviously my subconscious is putting them in there. So it's interesting that people, that's what's great about film or television or writing. Even if you're whatever kind of thing you do, it's great because the audience can kind of take away how it connects to them and they can take away certain things and maybe things that you didn't put an emphasis on that really resonates with them. Um, and so it really sticks out for them. Like this was so important because it resonated with me. And you're like, oh, that's really cool. Um, so I also heard that there was an alternate ending to the first Final Destination where Claire and Alex have a baby together to throw off death's, death's design. Is that true? Well, it's interesting because it, it, in my original script, death was about to get clear, and then but she was pregnant. Like, so, it, it, you know, and so the death couldn't get her. But then in my original script, you know, this is an awful ending, but in my original script, she was giving birth. She was actually having the baby. Mm. And all the, you know, all of a sudden that like, you know, right as she gets birth with the baby, it's like death gets her, you know, which is not, not a very positive ending. Yeah. Um, I know for the film, the version that they actually shot, Alex died when he d held the electrical cables and got shocked. He died. And then the film jumped forward and Ali Larder had a child because uh, there was a sex scene with him on the beach, and I think that got cut. Yeah. Um, but Allie Larder had a, had a baby, and, you know, she named it Alex. And, you know, she was holding it, and then Carter, you know, Kirsten's character, comes in to say hi. And then, it, you know, it's a very sweet ending about how death, there's always new life. And the audience hated it, you know. Like, they just didn't want a kind of a sappy ending to the movie. And then also people were like, well, is she with Carter now because he was such an asshole? Like... Why is she hanging out with him? Like, it has brought up too many things. And um, to the studio's credit, you know, they actually, when they test screened it, they decided to redo the ending. And I think the ending that James and Gloom came up with, with them going to France was great because it just took you back on that, you know, because horror movies, most of the time, if they're fun kind of roller coaster movies, you want to end on a high. And it doesn't have to be like a negative high. It can be a positive high, but you don't want to, have a movie and then the last five minutes is like a lady holding a baby and a leaf kind of floating down you know you because yeah. you, you want to walk out feeling something a little pumped and so that new ending that they shot was awesome i thought yeah no i thought i thought it really worked yeah they did a great job with that so and then the once that they did that the scores for the movie because they you know test screen a lot with movies and the scores like went through the roof after they shot the new ending. Oh, that's really interesting to hear. And in the second one, Clear is in Stony Brook Psychiatric Center. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I grew up in Stony Brook. Yeah. Um, so I was like, oh, that's my hometown. It's it's spelled <laughs> a little bit differently, and I don't think we have a psychiatric center. But I was like, oh, yeah, that's where I grew up. So that that's was cool. I actually play, I should say, um, I play horror movie trivia every weekend on Zoom with some horror movie friends. And uh, I asked them last night, I was like, oh, so I'm going to talk to Jeffrey uh, Reddick about, you know, horror movies. Do you have any questions? And they were like, so which Final Destination opening is, is his favorite? And you've already said the second one. What's a close runner up? The first one. The first one's a close runner up. I mean, it's interesting because as much as I like the, the roller coaster, I think it's interesting, but... I just always got confused and maybe your trivia friends can help and you can, you can email me the answer or call me and tell me the answer. But like, it seems like the guy who dropped his camera that wrapped around the track that caused the 
roller coaster to go off the rails. He didn't stay on the roller coaster unless I missed something completely. So it seems like since he didn't get on there, the roller coaster strap wouldn't have, you know, his camera wouldn't have dropped on the track and caused the wreck. So that always confused me. And then, you know, with four, it was a car. And then five, it, you know, we already had the ultimate, you can't outdo the second one for car crashes. So it doesn't matter if it's on a bridge or at NASCAR. But I think the plane, I think the opening of the first movie is very effective. You know, it's very realistic and very intense. So I think the, the first one is definitely my second favorite. Did you have anyone on set to tell, clarify as to whether or not the airport windows would really have blown in because of the explosion of the plane outside? No, because I know, you know, again, I, I wrote my draft of the script and I just wrote the accident. You know, I, you know, I described it in a way. And then I think obviously when you have a director writer coming on, you know, they start really plotting out how it goes. I assume because James and Glenn have worked so much, especially with the X-Files and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that they probably double checked on how all that would work. Yeah. Um, you usually do that if you're doing stunts or doing kind of accident stuff. Yeah. You usually try to get some kind of professional, even if you just call somebody who's an mm-hmm. expert and be like, hey, how does this happen? When I was trying to, because I, I remember when I was working on my the first draft of the script, like, you know, we loved it, but Craig was like, we, we just need something a little, there just needs to be one more level to like make it great. And so I was racking my brain for like weeks, you know, as a writer, like, what, do I, what can I come up with? And then I was sitting down one night and that's when I started thinking about the plane chart, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, this could be an interesting plane chart. And then I was trying to think, okay, well, if, yeah, if, if I can establish that they died in a certain order during the crash, then Alex can find that out. And then that gives him something to like, kind of start fighting back with, as opposed to just them all running and freaking out. So that was a kind of a cool, like, I didn't really worry about the science behind it because yeah. <laughs> I figure most people know a, a, a plane chart or, or a seating chart. Yeah. Um, and if a plane like crashes in a certain way or blows up, it's going to come from the front and go back. So were there any death sequences that were cut from any of the movies that you know of? No, they're pretty meticulous. Like they're pretty meticulous once they've written out the, the stuff because the, the movies are very well thought out because you have the producers involved, you have the executives at the studio involved, as well as the writer. So by the time they get to set, like, I don't think they, usually the only things that get cut out are like dialogue scenes or character, <laughs> character development scenes. <laughs> it's like, we need to get to the killing quicker. Um, so I don't think they cut any, I don't think they've ever cut any death scenes out. You know, obviously with the first one, when they decided not to have Alex die, when he grabbed the cable wires, the ending of that scene was different, you know, because at the, in the original, like she went over there and was crying and he was just dead. Um, so they kind of just have her go over to him now and cry a little bit. And then they cut to like, you know, he's fine. <laughs> so, Are you working on any new movies right now? Um, I'm working on a couple trying to get them, you know, different movies that are at different stages. So I'm trying to get some movies off the ground, but I'm just not sure if they're going to happen or not. So I always just tell people like to follow me on Twitter because as soon as I know anything, I'll post it. <laughs> um, but, you know, especially now with COVID going on, it's really hard to, to get things going. I mean, I can tell you a couple of, you know, I had another project that I produced that came out this month as well, or last month as well, called The Call that had uh, Lynn Shea and Tobin Bell in it, like for the first time together in a film. Timothy Roth, who directed a movie of mine that I co-wrote with John Doyle and Will Halfin called the final wish that came out a couple of years ago that had Tony Todd and Lynn Shea. Oh in yeah. It. I watched that like a month ago. Okay. Great. So it's, a, it's <laughs> the same director. Um, and so he got Tony Todd and Lynn Shea together for that movie. And he's got Lynn Shea and Tobin Bell together for, for the call. And that one's definitely, if you want a horror movie with like the blood and the, you know, 
yeah. the scares and the <laughs> the blood. That one's for you. But it's not the kind of I don't think it's the kind of blood that would bother bother you in a way because I have a feeling maybe the blood that bothers you because most people I know when they don't like blood, it's more if if you see somebody like cutting open flesh and there's like it's close up and it's gruesome. Like this movie isn't gruesome. Like the blood is more like somebody will walk into a room and there's blood on the walls. They know not like there's somebody there spewing blood up. So I thought the the blood in uh, the final wish was not not bad at all. The things that yeah. I don't like are like torture porn. Oh, so. I yeah, those are yeah yeah. I I ran out of a tolerance for that. I mean, I thought Hostel. I thought Hostel again because it didn't play into all the stereotypes of you know and it, you know some people hate the term torture porn, but for there it's a it's a term, so we're going to use it. You know, for Hostel, like it didn't play into the stereotypes of torture porn, and it also was dealing with kind of like American arrogance. You know, when we go to other countries and we just expect everybody to speak English and we're like, you know, we're Americans, damn it, do what we say. And then Hostel 2, which I think is one of the worst movies. There, I've seen worse, but it's shot beautifully. But everything Eli Roth did right with Hostel, he did wrong with Hostel 2. It's like, all right, we're going to take a bunch of women and one of them we're going to string upside down naked and have her pleading and screaming for her life for five minutes while she slowly slit with a sickle and a naked lady blazing her blood. And it's like, you just don't get why people liked your first one, do you? <laughs> <Eli>. <laughs> I have to admit, I have not seen Hostel because- You would not like it. You would yeah. absolutely hate it. Yeah, and I, I stay in hostels when I travel abroad. So I'm just <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need that in my head. <laughs> you don't need that, yeah. You would hate Hostel too. Hostel 3 was, was surprisingly interesting. I, you know, Because I do tend to watch every horror movie that comes out just because I like to keep up on things and look for new voices. But I thought Hostel 3, I was like, oh, this one's actually surprisingly not just gratuitous violence. It's actually kind of an interesting. I would, I'm not saying go out and watch it because I think it still has the same gross stuff in it. But it, it doesn't have that. I'll just spoil. I'll say spoiler so people cannot listen to this next part. But part two ends up with the guy who lived in part one, like getting murdered in the first scene which I hate when they do that in this horror sequel, then yeah, it's just like, let's torture a bunch of pretty women, you know, and be misogynistic for an, an hour. Mm, have you watched all the Saw movies? <laughs> yeah. I heard yeah. that there's like a good story, like about Jigsaw throughout all of them. Is that true? There, you know, there, there is, and they keep notching it up a level. I mean, some of the movies more than others are, you can tell some of the movies are definitely just, let's get people in there and just get as disgusting as we can with these traps, you know, cause it's, I mean, and they've said this in interviews, so this isn't spoil anything, but you know, they, they have writers, especially when they were cranking them out one a year, they would have writers working on the script and then they, they would just have a section marked set piece. And then they would have other people working on the traps and how people were, you know, they just knew which person was going to die and <laughs> they would figure out the traps. So some of the movies just definitely get more into the elaborate, like, traps and make it more about that and i think the better saw movies spend a little bit more time on the characters and start making more of a mystery about what's going on and there's several of them that i enjoy i started watching i think saw four last night and i was watching and i was like oh i think i've seen this like six times already so i'm not going to watch it again <laughs> but i thought the new one was interesting um and i'm definitely interested in seeing spiral the the chris rock new one that's going to be coming out i'm very interested to see how that one does You'll have to let me know. I won't be watching it. <laughs> I saw I saw the first one in theaters in 2004. And after that, I was like, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the first one was good because it had a, it was definitely more about like, how far would you go to like save your life? But how far would you go to keep your secrets and let somebody else? You know, there was just more to the first one, I think, than 
And then people just got really caught up on the gore and the traps, which, you know, we always do in it when there's ever a movie that's successful. If it's a comedy and it's like toilet humor, it's like, okay, diarrhea jokes are back. Let's make a movie with people having diarrhea all the time. It's like same in any genre. Like sometimes I'll pick up the wrong element that made a movie successful yeah. and just be like, yeah, let's just, you know, if I'm, you know, even now it's like 2020 and I get on Amazon and it's like, uh, another movie about five strangers waking up in a room or, oh, they're in a warehouse. Oh, they're in a basement or they're in a cellar. They're in a, well, yeah, it's just like five people trapped, wake up here. And then they're one, only one's going to get out alive. It's like, yeah. I mean, none of them will ever have the, the ending that the first saw did. Yeah. So you've, you've regularly watch horror movies. How do you decide what you want to watch when you sit down and you're like, I want to watch a horror movie tonight. I wish I could say I had some, <laughs> some very highfalutin like re thing, but usually, especially since we've been in this quarant, you know, this pandemic and this, you know, quarantine, um, a lot of it's like, okay, what's out, what out, what's out that that is new. Sometimes I'll check reviews. Sometimes it seems interesting to me, but a lot of times it's I'm like I have to be in a certain mood for certain types of movies. Like sometimes I'll see a good movie that's out. I'm like. Uh, this one I'm just not in the mood for because it's going to be really heavy and dark and, you know, the world's already a heavy, dark place um, <laughs> until Saturday and it's changed. Um, so now it's like I can watch. No, but it's like, yeah, it's usually what hits me. You know, like I'll be fun. Like sometimes when I'm very like, neuro you know, like all over the place, like last night I was debating like to watch this or watch that. And then I was like, well, let me watch Becky, you know, because I've been putting that one off for a while. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. So like, let me watch another one. And then I watched... Um, black box the amazon oh, okay. i think it's amazon yeah. and blumhouse yep. um because that was the only one i hadn't watched because i thought it was maybe more sci-fi than scary and i watched out i thought oh that's good and sometimes oh. i'm like oh i'm in the mood for something i've already seen so let me watch nightmare on elm street for the 500th million time <laughs> <laughs> is that your version of comfort horror yeah do you have any other movies that you'd consider comfort horror you know any of the friday the 13th or comfort horror for me I don't always watch all of Scream, but I'll watch that opening scene from Scream. <laughs> if I need quick comfort, you know, like my quick fix of comfort, yeah. that opening scene of Scream 1 is just amazing. Ugh, it's never uh, old. Yeah, never, never, ever. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'll watch the, you know, a couple of, ha there's a couple of Halloweens that I'll definitely watch. I, I have an affinity for H2O um, because I like Steve Miner. He directed one of my films and he's just a great guy. Like I've always admired him and he's so cool. And, and I love Halloween H2O. So that's one I'll kind of watch. And now that I know Marion Crane's alive in the new new universe, I can watch her get killed in the opening <laughs> of the other movie. <laughs> um, so back in July, I think it was, there was an article that came out that said that horror fans are faring better in lockdown. Why do you think that is? I think that's interesting. I never, I didn't, I didn't see that. I mean, Again, I think probably a lot of it goes back to, you know, again, horror, horror fans like, well, you know, I'm a horror fan and a writer, so I'm kind of used to solitary time, you know, like I need it. And, you know, I like to watch horror. If I'm, I love to go to the theaters, but if I'm watching a horror movie at home, I like to watch it by myself. Like I don't invite a bunch of people over um, to have a big party about it unless it's one of my movies. <laughs> or if it's my friend's movie, I'll go to their house to watch their movies. But if I'm just watching a new horror movie, I just like to sit here on my couch you know, with my cat and watch it, you know, but I, I think, um, you know, there's probably some, there's some part of, especially if you're like, cause horror fans are like, you know, we don't, we don't just half ass fan it. It's not like, it's not like if you're a comedy fan, you're like, yeah, you know, I like watching comedies. What's the last comedy you saw? I don't know. It's probably been, you know, two years. I don't know what it was. It's like, you know, horror fans are like weekly, you know, <laughs> intake of horror films. So 
you know, I think that we've had a lot of good films coming out that we can watch. And again, I think a lot of it's probably, you know, it's cathartic for us. You know, it's cathartic to be afraid. And again, with a movie where, you know, you're safe when it's over. Um, so I think, again, it's a lot of it's just processing those fears and that negativity is probably something that horror films help us. A lot of people do. You know, I have some friends that when they get stressful, they watch, I, I don't understand this, but they watch the real life murder mystery documentary shows where it's like tonight on dateline this man i'm like what what friend killed i'm talking to my friend i'm like so what guy or killed his wife or what husband or what wife killed her husband in this episode that you're watching it's like <laughs> i don't know why that's comforting to you they're like well that, their life is worse than mine i'm like yeah but that's just real murder that's awful <laughs> Um, did you watch on, I think it was on HBO, what was it called, An American Murder? Maybe it was Netflix. Yeah, about the guy that killed his wife. Yeah. That was, and that's the one where they had the video of her coming home yes. from the airport. Yeah, that was hard. Because again, I, I don't think most horror fans like real life horror. Like I know that I'm, I am, growing up, I was very fascinated by serial killers, like reading about them. But as far as violence in real life, I just abhor violence um, in real life. And I've, you know, just been around too many people, you know, distant relatives who are in, or neighbors who were in abusive relationship. Like I just I don't like real life violence, but I still, I, I can't watch a lot of those movies, but I'd heard so much about that show and I got sucked into it. You know, just seeing her coming home that night with her bag and knowing that she never left. It's just, yeah, it really <sighs> broke my heart. It really bothered me. But it, I, I did watch it because I'm like, they better catch this fucker. Yeah, it was it was intense, and the husband was so bad at covering up for himself. I know, and then you, but then you wonder again. It's like again, there are so many. You know, that's a scary part about reality is like there there are those crazy psychopaths everywhere. You know, there's serial killers everywhere, especially in America, and it's like they're all hiding out there in plain sight. That's what scares me. Not that not the psychopaths. I mean. Again, I, I'm more scared about how people, how easily people can get riled up to hate each other. Like that scares me more than than anything. That's the thing that really scares me. But yeah, I haven't really worried about, yeah, I don't think I've ever bumped into like a serial killer. I never, you know. We wouldn't luck, know. <laughs> I wouldn't know unless, yeah, unless they had tried to murder me. But I've always, I've always, because I've watched so many horror films, I've always thought of how I would react. This is like the, this is like a, a silly fact about me, but in my brain, I'm like, because I studied theater, I realized if I ever met somebody and I got in an awkward position where like I, you know, met a guy for a date or whatever, we went back to his place and he was like, I'm a serial killer. I'm going to kill you. I'd be like, fuck, I was going to kill you. Cause all of these serial killers, like they'll team up with another, they'll, they'll, you know, depending on what type they are, they'll team up with another partner. So my, in my brain, I'm like, I will totally go fucking psycho and just start pretending. I was going to fucking kill you and just try to be like, well, let's find somebody to kill together. And then once we got out somewhere, I'd like run away. <laughs> But I've thought about this. That is a great idea. Um, yeah. yeah, if I was if I was not in a relationship, I would definitely do that if I ever found myself in that situation. Well, if your partner turns out to be a serial killer, now you know. If he yeah, surprises now, you one day and says, hey, honey, I'm a serial killer, you can be like, so am I. I've been planning this thing the whole time. <laughs> you <that>. too? <laughs> yeah. I knew we connected for a reason. Yeah. I just didn't know it was that one. <laughs> but I know you have a black hat that you said you watch horror movies with? I saw your yeah. black cat a couple weeks ago. And I saw your black cat walk by a little bit ago too. <laughs> Did you rescue him or her? What, what is their name? Yeah, yeah um, her, her name's Storm. I re I, she was a rescue. 
Um, I had another black cat, uh, Katan, that I had for 19 years, actually. Wow. Um, and I, I got her um, as a baby. Like, she was just very, maybe six months old, if that, when I got her. And I, this is kind of a sad story, but, you know, I'd started working from home, and then 9-11 happened. And so I, you know, when I was in my apartment, like, I went out and the day of 9-11, and I, you know, was waking up, and I turned the TV on, and I saw, like, the World Trade Center, like one of the towers, like on fire, but I just thought it was a movie. Like, you don't, you know what I'm saying? You can't really, pr you just look at it and I'm like, oh, there's something weird happening. And then my friend called me and they're like, you need to get out of there now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you know, they're flying planes in the World Trade Center. So I'm still like waking up. So I went downstairs to the lobby to ask the guard what was going on. And he's like, you need to get out of here. I'm like, well, I need to go get my cat. And my, he's like, no, you need to run. Cause they thought there was, there were some gas lines under the city that I thought might blow up. So I couldn't go get my cat for like four days. You know, they assured us that there was a skeleton tr crew in the building that was going to the apartments and feeding them. But since I'd had my cat since she was a baby, she was, she, but when I finally got to that apartment, she was screaming her brains out. We all took, we all, there was a big van full of us with animals. There was like every kind of snakes and dogs and cats and chimpanzees and every kind of animal. They were all quiet except for my cat. She was just <laughs> squalling like, so she had, she had the worst separation anxiety for me ever. So she was always following me around and always in my lap. And when she passed away, I was like, I have to get another, another cat, especially during quarantine. Like I can't. And I got Storm and Storm is just like, she, I think she was a street rescue because she's like one of those just tough cats where she's like, eh, I'll, I'll come over and look at you when I'm hungry and I'll <laughs> let you pet me for a minute, but I'm not sitting on your lap and I'll sleep at the end of the bed, but I'm not sleeping up by you. Well, maybe I'll sleep up by you for five seconds, but then I'm going right back to the edge of the bed. So I'm like, all right, whatever. Well, I think your black cat and my black cat are related because that's what my black cat's like. So yeah, she's never, she sat in my lap, I think two times in the four years that since I adopted her and yeah, yeah she'll sleep right next to me for until I turn out the light and then she's like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny because they have, which they're great because they have their own personalities, but it's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to get you a brother or sister that's cuddly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you intentionally adopt a black cat because they're supposedly like scary and whatnot in this country? Not really. I mean, the, the, the reason I got a black one after um, my other cat was I, I read that during Halloween, you know, people tend to get and adopt black cats. And then after Halloween, they'll like, return them or just like throw them out. So I read that. Um, and I think that was through the ASPCA in New York, actually, where I read that is like during, after Halloween, like so many black cats are put up for adoption and it's really hard to find homes for all of them. So then I was like, you know, I'm going to get a black cat. And I think they're beautiful anyway. So then I got one and then Storm's black. And if I get her a brother or sister, it's going to be black too. Just because <laughs> I feel like if they're unwanted, you know, not unwanted, but if they're being like dumped back out on the, into the streets or back into the system, I'm just going to try to save at least one. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> did you live near the, did you live in downtown Manhattan on 9-11? Yeah, I lived in Battery Park City. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. okay. So I was, yeah. You were yeah, right there. <laughs> very close, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I lived for three years during school on uh, Fulton and William Street, which was right down the block from, yeah. but it wasn't during, it was several years after that yeah. But uh, yeah, I can't imagine what it was like to be there on that day. Yeah. 
<laughs> it was shocking. I mean, the, you know, this, and the sad thing is it was, I mean, it was obviously a shocking thing, but then, but the thing is that this, it never lasts, but you got, you actually saw the country and the world kind of come together. Yeah. You know, like everybody in New York, like people were on the street, like people were handing each other people's, their phones because people didn't have phones and they were worried about reaching relatives and people were letting people they didn't know crash with that. Like, you know, and, the, and people, there was just like an outpouring of like love and support in the country. And then it, you know, and Giuliani, you know, the old Rudy Giuliani that New York knew and loved honestly brought the city together. Like, I mean, he'd go in there now and just tear it apart, but you know, he worked really hard to bring the city together and then it, yeah. But then after like three weeks, all of a sudden it started, like people started fighting again. Then it was like, people are like beating up, you know, Muslims or not even, or Indians, anybody that had brown skin, they were be, you know, it just turned ugly again. So mm -hmm. for that bright shining moment, it was like, yeah, you know what, we can come together when we need to. We just choose to not need to apparently most of the time. Yeah. Hopefully we choose to again sometime soon. Yeah. Well, we have a choice. So what movie are you most upset that has been postponed because of COVID? That's a good question. Probably Halloween Kills. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was really wanting to see that. I was really wanting to see that one. I want to see Wonder Woman too, but I think Halloween Kills was there. I'm sure there are a couple of other ones that I'm forgetting about, but I think it was Halloween Kills is the one that I was, or Candyman. Candyman, I'm sorry. <laughs> Candyman, then Halloween Kills. Those are the two that I'm most, and then Wonder Woman after that. Do you hold any unpopular horror movie opinions or, or are there any horror movies that you love that people generally don't like? I don't think I hold any unpopular opinions. It's, it's just funny because my personality has always been very much like mellow and I kind of get along with everybody. You know, I always respect at least people's opinions, even if I, you know, if I don't think their opinions are rooted in fact, and it's something like racism or sexism or homophobia or Islam, then I'll have a discussion with them. <laughs> but just opinions on things like, again, sometimes people hate horror movies and I never try to talk people who hate horror movies into liking them because I'm like, I understand that's not your thing. So I don't think I hold any unpopular opinions. I'm trying to think if there's any movies that I like that other people are like, how can you like that? It's horrible. No, no, I think, you know, I think, a you know, like, I think there should be more male nudity in horror movies. Who's going to argue with that? Not me. See? So <laughs> that's not unpopular. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any horror movie that I adore that people are just like, that movie's awful. And I don't think there is. I mean, I guess the most unpopular opinion that I'll use for is that, you know, I do think that even though I know everything that went wrong with the process and the end movie did not turn out how it started when I started writing it, I will say, I think the Day of the Dead remake, if it wasn't called Day of the Dead, people would enjoy it. If it was called Zombie Town, people would enjoy the movie. That, I'll, that's probably my unpopular opinion. That's like the a Child's Play remake a Child's Play remake last year. People didn't like it because it was connected to Child's Play and it was nothing like the originals, but people were like, if it did, wasn't called Child's Play, it would have been great. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was, I thought, and it, was, and it wasn't even, here, here's my problem. I don't want to go off a tangent. My two problems with it were, it just, it seemed like silly, you know, a guy just reprograms a doll and then jumps out a window to kill himself. And then, it bugged me that I thought the, the the mother in the movie was like the worst mother on the planet. Like they moved to this really shady part of town in this really janky apartment. And the first night in, um, the kid looks out the window. There's like these three like you know scary looking kids at the at a parking you know at a street light, and it's the middle of the night. And she's like, "Go out and play with them." And he's like, "What?" And she's like, "You got to make friends." I'm like, "It's the it's dark. What mother would tell her son to go out and play with three strangers on the street?" Yeah. away from the house and <laughs> I liked the actress that played the mother but yeah. I was like man she's a bad mother <laughs> she's 
like go and play with those strangers on the street. Yeah, at 11.30 p.m. Yeah, yeah. Hey, go do it. Quit being a baby. Go play with those strangers. Um, if you could remake one horror movie, which one would it be? It's, it's funny um, because I know, I, I know the Tom McLaughlin and I adore him and I know he's working on it. The only movie that I've ever in my life wanted to remake, because I think it would be, but I'm sure his remake that he's working on is going to be just as good as One Dark Night. It's an 80s horror movie, very good with Jennifer Tilly. And the setup is amazing. It's about this kind of guy that's a, a psychic vampire who dies and he gets buried in this mortuary. And then Meg plays this, this young girl who's trying to join a sorority. So they make her spend the night in this haunted mausoleum. And then they give her LSD and then they prank her. But then the psychic vampire comes alive and starts making the corpses come out. And it's got a great ending, but the middle of it is just Meg Tilly on LSD tripping out while these girls like run around. But I'm like, you have such a great setup with this psychic vampire. There's so much you can do with this movie. Like, and I actually met Tom McLaughlin and, and we talk more now because we're working on something. I met him at a convention once and I was like, you know, have you ever, what's going on with One Dark Night? Do you, you know, have you ever thought about remaking it? And he's like, yeah. I thought about it. I said, yeah, I have some good ideas, you know, I, I think would work. And he's like, I'm remaking it. And I was like, sorry, Tom McLaughlin. <laughs> but then we talk later and I, you know, I realized that that probably sounded very douchey coming from somebody that doesn't know, you know, but <laughs> that was the one movie where I thought it has so much, it had so much untapped potential that it merits a remake. I haven't, well, I don't know if this is unpopular. I think that, um, I think that Slumber Party Massacre, the original is one of the funniest. I could watch that movie a million times. I think it's a classic. My friend Jody, who was my first guest ever on this podcast, I think one of his favorite movies is Slumber Party Massacre 2. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else, but that movie, that movie has definitely come up before. That's so funny. <laughs> I, I love it. It was, it was directed, it was written by a feminist and I think directed by a lesbian director. Mm. And it's the most gratuitous movie. I mean, there's a shower scene where the girls are talking to each other for like five minutes and it, while they're like showering. So there's so much gratuitous nudity in it. And the, mm. the killer has a drill that they keep showing from behind when he's holding, going down through. So it's very like on the nose about yeah. like stuff like that. But mm. I read that they originally had written it to be like a spoof on horror movies mm. and okay. the, over, how over the top, you know, it was, then the producers didn't want it to be that. So they made, them ser- it, made it, they made it serious and then it mm. kind of undermined all they wanted to do. But I just find the movie hilarious and just very entertaining. <laughs> do you have a big horror movie collection in your home? Yeah. And I, you know, at some point, cause my couple of my friends are like, they're digitizing their collections because they're like, everything's going to be digital at some point anyway. And I'm like, that is true. We are moving to that time. You know, it's like having the VHS or cassette tapes. It's like, yeah, it's nice to have them, but at some point they're going to be obsolete. But yeah, I've got, um, I can't even imagine how many, I have way too many DVDs. <laughs> like, I would say too many. I have a huge, huge, huge collection of movies. My last question is if you had to spend quarantine with one horror villain, who would it be? I was going to say, the vampire Lestat from Interview with the Vampire. But he was kind of, he was, a, he did get kind of bitchy over time. So that might be annoying, but it would, it would have to be a, it would have to be a hot, like, you know, Jason, you know, not Jason Bateman, um, you know, Patrick Bateman from American Psych. As long as he didn't kill me, it would just have to be some, it would have to be some hot, interesting guy. All right. So we'll, we'll go with Patrick Bateman. Patrick Bateman. Okay. Okay. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, you know, Twitter's the best place, you know, Jeffrey A. Reddick. I'm also have that handle on Instagram, but my Instagram is so boring because, you know, all people post on there is, you know, either the wonderful places they're traveling or them with their clothes off. And I'm usually just writing at home. So nobody wants to see, you know, here's another picture of me at my laptop. 
<laughs> and then I'm definitely not taking my clothes off. I started a, started a new like diet workout regimen. So I'm still not going to take my clothes off. Maybe I'll superimpose my face over some like Denzel Washington's body and then be like, Hey, that's me. And they're like, yeah, but you're from the neck up, you're a lot lighter. And I'll be like, farmer's tan. Uh, <laughs> you can always post pictures of your cat. Yeah. Oh yeah. I should do more of my cat. But yeah, my Instagram is very boring. Um, my Twitter has a little bit more going on. All right. Well, thank you so much. I, of course. I will see you around on Twitter. All right, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Who's There. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jeffrey Reddick and thanks again to Jeffrey for coming on. Hopefully he was able to answer all of your questions about your favorite Final Destination movies. And don't forget to check out his newest movie, Don't Look Back. I'll leave a link to Jeffrey's Twitter and where you can rent Don't Look Back in the show notes. As always, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our feed wherever you listen to us. Thank you so much to everyone who's already left us a review. We really appreciate it as it helps people find us and we want to reach as many many horror fans as possible. You can follow us on Twitter at Who's There Pod. We're on Instagram at Who's There Podcast. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, horror movie recommendations, or you'd like to be a guest, shoot us an email at thewhosetherepod at gmail.com. Until next time, stay scary and wear a mask.